in our series on the book of 1 Corinthians. It's been a great series so far and a challenging series so far. And today, like most things in 1 Corinthians, it's not getting that much easier for us. <laughs> uh, but I'm excited to tackle these things because I think they are helpful for us. And we find ourselves in chapter 3, and we're going to be working through verses 1 to nine. And as you're turning there, I'll just give you a recap of what we've been kind of working through as a church. We, we've been looking at uh, divisions in the church that Paul mentioned back in chapter uh, 1, verse 10. If you remember back there, some were saying that I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter, or I follow these really mature guys. I follow Christ and no one else. I don't need all your stuff. And, uh, and we fleshed all that out a few weeks ago. And since then, we've seen that Paul continues to correct issues within the church. And in do he's doing so by setting a firm foundation on the wisdom of God. That the wisdom of the world doesn't even hold a match to the wisdom of God. And he makes a few contrasts these last couple weeks. He was talking about the spiritual person the versus the natural person, the preacher of God's word, and the philosophers of the world. And he's doing all of this contrasting throughout these chapters so that we would understand and that they would understand as a church that we don't take human standards or worldly standards and oppose those upon the preacher and teacher of God's word or upon God's word in general. And now Paul finally gets back to the thing that he started all the way back in the first chapter. He mentioned Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, and then he kind of took a hiatus from that, and now he brings it all back here in chapter 3. And he brings it home to the reason why he's making these arguments for the past two chapters. And we see that the people in Corinth, what they were doing was using worldly wisdom, worldly standards in order to judge the servants of Christ, in order to judge Paul in order to judge Apollos, in order to judge Peter. And they were, he's saying they were acting like the world. They're not acting like spiritual people. They weren't acting like people who God has filled with their, his spirit, but rather like people of the flesh. Or he's going to call them, as you'll see, infants in Christ. So what we're seeing is Paul calling them immature. He still considers them brothers. He still considers them believers. When Paul says, I could not address you as spiritual people, he is not saying, I don't think you're a Christian. Let's look at this starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, which says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he's calling them brothers, or brothers in Christ. He is not questioning at this point their salvation. Oh, thank you, a sweat rag, right? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, now we're really Southern Baptists, aren't we? Uh, just kidding. <laughs> he was calling them in, uh, he, he was, he, he's calling them, not questioning their salvation, but he was calling them brothers, he was calling them infants in Christ, saying that they were immature, but he's not questioning if they were saved or not. These people in Corinth, you see, they've believed. They have seen the wisdom of the gospel. They have turned from their old ways of living. They have joined together with Christ. They are experiencing persecution for Christ's name. They are gathering together in worship and to partake together of the Lord's Supper. And they're talking about theological things and they're understanding these things because they are Christian people who are gathered together, who are making up the church of Corinth. But Paul says they are acting in a merely human way. 
They are acting just like, uh, just like people of the flesh, like the natural person, Paul says. And he's quite severe in his accusations and attempting to rebuke and to correct their behaviors. And he, and he says, I can't dr- address you as spiritual people, but people of the fl- flesh, people of infants in Christ. And then he says in verses 2 to 3, he says, I fed you with milk. Not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh, for you are still of the flesh. For uh, And then he goes on, and, and we'll flesh out the rest later, but he's saying you are still immature. You are still acting in a merely human way. You are still using the world's wisdom as it pertains to these issues and divisions in the church. And a good way to illustrate this example is to talk about actual babies. Now, I have a friend who lives down in the States whose son, when he was born, obviously couldn't have solid food, like all infants. But as he grew, he still couldn't have solid food. If they would leave one grain of rice, even unblended, he would reject it all. He would throw it all up. And, and, and just like any infant who, uh, who, who, can't have, who can't have solid food long before milk, uh, uh, they are, because they are young, Paul is saying so are the Christians who can't handle solid teaching of God's word. That's what he's talking about, that if you give them solid food, they're going to become violently ill, they're going to reject it. He is relating the truth of infants to spiritual truth. He says that these people have no appetite or desire to learn beyond the things that they already know. And and if you give them some solid teaching, they're going to complain about it. They're going to vomit it all up. They're going to reject it because they have no appetite for the solid knowledge of Scripture, no appetite for mature theological discussion, no No appetite to grow in Christian thought or thinking through the hardships of life and how the gospel pertains to those things. Because immature Christians want a simple message. They want to be wowed. They want to be dazzled. Immature Christians don't want to think through the truthfulness of scriptures and what it means for their lives. Immature Christians just want to feel better. They want something light. They don't want to be uh, the conviction of sin. They don't want to hear about how their life needs to change. They don't want to hear about repentance, and they don't want to hear about rebuke. They don't want to examine their lives, and they don't want to grow in their knowledge or adoration of God. And that's what Paul is getting at here with the Corinthian believers. He's saying they are not ready still for further instruction. He's saying, you have no appetite for for it when I came, and you also have no appetite for it now. But unlike actual infants who can't help it because they're young and they're growing, Paul is rebuking these Corinthians because it is something that they can control. It's something that they are culpable for. It's something that they are responsible for. He's saying, stop acting immature. Stop wanting things of the world. Stop fixing your eyes and hopes and worldly wisdom. Fix your eyes and hope on God. Sink your teeth into the word of God. Grab hold of solid teaching of truth and let it transform your life. Stop acting immaturely. That's what he's saying. And I want to make a quick clarification because this passage can, has been used and abused by many churches and teachers throughout the ages. Sometimes, the illustration found here of solid food and milk is taken too far to say that some teachings of the Bible are solid and other teachings of the Bible are milk. And so we have a division, we make this invisible division between the deep doctrines of the Bible opposed to the shallow doctrines of the Bible or elementary doctrines of the Bible or simple 
doctrines of the Bible. And so often, sadly, people put the gospel under the category of milk. They say that's, a lot of mature believers believe the lie that they have graduated past the gospel. Hey, that was just for me to get saved. And now I can move on to greater and better things because I am mature. It's inappropriate to look at the gospel as elementary doctrines of the faith. And the deeper doctrines of the faith are maybe things like predestination or end times, etc., etc. That once you really grapple with the stuff, then you can go deep. And people often regulate these things as deep doctrines of the faith. And that's not at all what Paul is saying within these verses. There is nowhere in Scripture where you will see a list of deep doctrines and a list of shallow doctrines. Say, okay, start the new believers here and then work them here. You won't find that. You will not find that idea in Scripture at all. That is not what Paul is talking about. What he is talking about is how the Corinthians are receiving the truth. How and how he's delivering that truth. And here he says in this letter, in the second verse, that he fed them with milk and not with solid food because they were not ready for it. And even now, at the beginning of this letter, he says, you're still not ready for it. Meaning, if we were to inappropriately divide scripture based upon milk and solid meaty food, then we would have to say the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is milk, if we were following that logic. Because Paul says in verse 2 that the Corinthians are still not ready for solid food because they are immature in their faith. And think about the things that Paul has taught so far just in these last two chapters. He has taught about uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has taught about predestination. He has taught about God's sovereignty and salvation. And he's going to, later on in the scriptures, talk about the Lord's Supper, about the atonement of Christ. He's going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. He's going to talk about eschatological things or future things in chapter 15. He's also going to detail the federal headship of Adam and the headship under Christ, also in chapter 15 as well. These are some deep, weighty matters. And he goes through all of these deep things and he calls it all milk. So it's not referring that some doctrines are light and other doctrines are heavy, but rather the manner in which we are conveying these truths. He just spent the last two chapters drilling home one single point about the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world, how it's futile and how it's passing away, how it's perishing and how it holds no weight in comparison to the wisdom of the gospel. And he has hammered this point because he is trying to get into their heads because they're immature, that they are infants in Christ, and they need to understand this. And when you think about how you and I even teach our children Christian truth and how we teach it here at the church and in our, in our homes, it's the same truths that we are learning as adults. We teach our kids about the gospel. We teach our kids about the church. We teach our kids about the Old Testament and the New Testament. We teach them about the atonement. We teach them about baptism, about the Lord's Supper, about the types and the shadows and the foreshadows. We teach our kids all these things. The only difference is the manner in which we teach them. We don't teach it in the same way that we teach it to adults. But we are still teaching the same truth. We teach it at a level which kids can grasp but it's the same truth. So please don't think that milk is something that is simple like the gospel and meat is something deep like the other teachings of Scripture. Paul is not talking about such a thing here. Rather, he is talking about the way that we are expressing it to other believers. And the reality is, oftentimes, these quote-unquote deep teachings that we, that we hear from these so-called teachers of the truth are just portraying of man-made twistings of the Scripture. 
If you listen to a sermon, you go, man, I would never have seen that in that verse. You should be weary. If you hear me preaching, this is why I do expository preaching. We preach through books. Because if you go and you go, wow, I would have never got that from there. I have to do a lot of squinting to see that. You should be weary of what I'm teaching you. If, if you go online and you listen to the million options that there are out there and you go, wow, that's so deep, and you look at the word of God and say, nope, never would have guessed it from that, that verse. Be weary. Because lots of false teaching comes with this inviting banner of being deep. And just stick around a little longer. You'll figure it out. But so often, it only seems deep because it's so obscure that it's no longer the word of God. It's, uh, it's, it's likely an idea that has been forced upon the text. You can make the Bible say whatever you want. That's why Christian history is riddled with wars and, and horrible things that Jesus would never have condoned of. Because you can read things into the text that are not meant to be there. So Paul is saying, I'm addressing you as immature Christians. I am giving you milk, and I'm giving you the same teaching that I'd give anyone, and I have to drill it into your head because you're not getting it. But you might be wondering, well, why is Paul calling the Corinthians immature? Well, let's continue reading. We'll see it plainly here in Scripture. Picking up in verse 3, it says, For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy, underline this if you do that, jealousy and strife among you, and you are not... Uh, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and the other says, I follow Paulus, are you not merely human? There's the context for you. That's what he's talking about. Why are they immature? Because they're acting in an immature way. They're acting in dealing with leaders as the world would. He says there is jealousy. There is strife among them. That, and then these divisions that they're sloganeering after other leaders. And they're following one leader after another. And they're pitting these leaders in the church against one another. And he's saying this is what the world does, Corinthians. This isn't what Christians do. This is what the world does. We are called as Christians to love Christ and be united under that banner of love for Jesus. We are called to love one another. And we are called to regard the servants that Christ has put in our lives as exactly what they are. Servants. This is why they were immature. It's not because of a lack of knowledge. It wasn't because they were young like a group of teenagers. It wasn't because they lacked at giftedness because we know that the Corinthians were probably one of the most gifted New Testament churches around in this time. So it wasn't because of lack of giftedness. It wasn't a lack of teaching. Because who planted this church? The Apostle Paul did. And then he spent a year and a half there. And then a guy named Apollos comes who was a brilliant preacher. And he taught them really, really well. And now Paul is writing letters to them. It's not because of a lack of teaching. But rather, like all Christian immaturity... It's because of a lack of obedience, because of a lack of applying what they knew from Scripture and living it. We always say, oh, once I know more, I'm going to be a better Christian. No, 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 no. You need to be obedient in what you little you have right now. So if you only understand, like a lot of these guys who got dunked today, hey, I don't know really much about the Christian faith, but I know Jesus is God. Great. Be obedient to that. And it will work out. By taking these gospel truths and applying them to ourselves and to their church, they wouldn't have had these divisions if they were truly believing the gospel and applying it. So immaturity is not a lack of giftedness. It's not a lack of teaching, but rather it's a lack of obedience, lacking application of what you already know. And that seems, in my opinion, as the great description of the Canadian church. 
by and large, we know a lot, but we're not obedient. We don't perish because we have a lack of knowledge. <laughs> you can get anything off the internet. Maybe not good, but you can still get knowledge from there, right? It, but we, we perish because of a lack of applying the things that we already know. We do not live consistently with the things that we know from Scripture. So this rebuke, church, is for as much as us as it is for them. So now as we consider this text before us, before we look at verses 5 to 9, I have to take, it's not really a bunny trail, but again, I have to explain some misapplications of the verses before us because they are wide, they are large, and I'm sure some of you have held to these beliefs because I know I have. So he says in the verses that we read that there is jealousy and strife among them. Okay, I need you to remember that context is important. You can understand the Bible by just picking up clues of context. There's jealousy and strife among them, and he says they're acting just like the world in that area. But yet he still calls them brothers in Christ. We need to remember this. He calls them infants in Christ. He's not questioning their salvation. He recognizes that they are still Christians. But from this text, the first three verses, uh, uh, sorry, from verse 3, uh, 4, has come the idea or teaching as what some people have called the carnal Christian. Who has heard of that term, the carnal Christian? Yeah, or maybe backslidden Christian. There you go, more hands. It's all talking about the same teaching, the backslidden Christian, the carnal Christian. It's a very prevalent teaching in the church, this idea that there are carnal Christians and spiritual Christians or backslidden Christians or defeated Christians, and then there are victorious Christians. And it comes from this text of Scripture. Nowhere else in the Bible talks about a carnal Christian except for these few verses. And from these verses have come a wide variety in the last 100 years of teaching that is misapplied, that is wrong, and we need to look at it. So we'll look at how it's been applied in the past so we can understand the proper context. Now why, just off the bat, it's called a carnal Christian is because of the King James Version. In 1611, when they took the Greek word sarks, they translated it as carnal. Sarks means flesh or human. And so carnal in 1611 meant that. But the new translations, no fault to the King James, but they use the word, they don't use the word carnal because like every English word from 1611 has changed. It has changed its meaning. If you look on the dictionary right now, you'll see that carnal has to do with sexual immorality. And that's not the context of our verses today, and that would be improper to teach that context. They are being carnal and acting worldly because of why? Jealousy and strife and divisions among them. They are not acting in sexual immoral ways in the context of these verses. We'll get there, don't worry, in a few weeks. Uh, But not right now, which is why the new translations don't use the word carnal. But they use the word fleshly or human or acting in a human way, which is what the Greek word sarks means. But the term carnal Christian was popularized in the 1900s by the teaching of a man named Lewis Barry Schaefer. He was a self-taught man. He was very smart. He actually founded Dallas Theological Seminary. And so he wrote a small book in 1918. It's on my shelf. Uh, and he's, and it's, it's called He That Is Spiritual. And in that book, he goes through these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says that the word of God divides the whole human race into three classes. The first class is the natural man or the man without the spirit of God. So anytime I refer to the natural man in the sermon, we're talking about non believers, non-Christians. Then he says there's a second category. Uh, that It's the carnal man or the, or the person who is a Christian, but he's living like the world. 
And then thirdly, you have the spiritual man who is a Christian, the one who has surrendered their life to the Lord. And Schaefer says that this carnal man, uh, about this carnal man, that the, effe- uh, the, effe- uh, sorry, the objectives and affections are centered in the same unspiritual sphere as that of the natural man. That's a direct quote from his book. And what he's saying here is that the carnal man His affections, his joys, his loves, his passions are indistinguishable from that of the natural man or the person who believes, uh, uh, who doesn't believe in Jesus. The only difference between a carnal man and the natural man is that the carnal man is evidently a Christian. Why? Well, because he, he believed the gospel at some point. He maybe said a prayer. He confessed Christ. He asked Christ to save him. Maybe he went to a, a high-energy youth conference and everybody was doing it, so he did it as well. Um, but nothing changed. His objectives uh, and his affections are centered in the same unspiritual sphere of the natural man. But the spiritual Christian can be understand the ones who can understand the deep things of God, the one who's living like Christ. But Schaefer says in his book that many Christians are carnal, and God has given them a clear directions and steps on what to take to become more spiritual. And he says that the spiritual state, obviously, is the ideal state that we should all want to be in. And I'm summarizing here. I'm not quoting, but you can read it in his book if you'd like. And now what that book was written in 1918. Immediately after he published that book, the great reformed theologian B.B. Warfield wrote a response to him refuting everything he said in that book by scripture. And, And yet his warning went unheeded. In the last 100 years, Schaeffer's views have grown to be one of the most dominant views in evangelicalism. And many terrible and dangerous things have come out of this view by recognizing that there's a natural man and a carnal man and they're indistinguishable from each other. And as we saw in this text, in context, Paul, when he's talking about the carnal Christian, is someone who is acting fleshly or merely in a human way, is someone who is completely indistinguishable from the world. They, they're acting carnally because they were of jealousy and strife among us, because in this one area of divisions, they were acting sinfully. They were using human standards to judge Paul and Apollos, and they were acting in a human way. And yet... They were still meeting together on Sundays. They were still worshiping God throughout the week and on, uh, uh, together and breaking bread together. They were experts in the Bible. They were digging into the Old Testament scriptures. They were making the gospel known to Corinth, and they were enduring persecution, and they were standing for the name of Christ. So in many ways, yes, they had their joys and their hopes set in Jesus Christ. But in this one way, Paul is saying, they are acting like the flesh. Not in every way, but in this one way. So when Schaefer says the carnal man looks no different from that of the worldly man or person except for that he has believed in Jesus at some point in his life is a false view derived from Scripture that does not fit the context and we should reject it. The idea of a carnal person who is just like the world except for at some point he asked Jesus into his heart with no change has caused much damage to, our, to the church and many different false views. So I want to quickly just flesh out three of those things that have caused damage. It has led to a wrong view of assurance of our faith. Because the carnal person and the spiritual person, according to Schaefer, are both Christians. And because the carnal person is really indistinguishable from the natural man, the fruit of your life is no longer the basis for your assurance. So if you're living for Christ, you're going to church, your life looks dramatically different from that of the world, your desires are to serve him and to love him and to keep his commands and to worship him on Sunday, none of those anymore can be a basis that you're saying, yeah, God changed me, I think I can believe this. It can no longer be your basis for assurance. 
The only basis for your assurance is that maybe one day you prayed a prayer to ask Jesus in your life. And hopefully you were sincere. Because if you were, well, you're a Christian. You've you got some fire insurance now. You may be living carnally. You may be living uh, defeated. You may be living just like the world. You may never come into a church for your whole life. You may be only entered through the doors of a church for a funeral or a wedding. But in either case, it doesn't matter. Because you prayed a prayer. You're good. You might be living carnally, but that's okay. But sorry to burst your bubble, church. That does not fit with Scripture. That does not accord with Scripture. It's actually preposterous to believe this, and it's false according to the Word of God. Over and over and over again, Jesus says that you will know them by your fruits. They will know you by your love. You shall know them by their love for one another. You look at the book of Hebrews, it says, and it gives warnings about forsaking the assembly of Christ, and that if you do, and this is a gradual moving away from the things of God, that you are not truly a believer, that you have abandoned Christ, you have abandoned Abandon the gospel and you've turned your back. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, they went out from us because they were never truly among us. Over and over again, the scriptures look at the fruit of the regeneration in your life as evidence of you being truly born of God. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe not perfectly, that's okay. Are your affections for him? Those are evidences that you have been born again. Do you love the commandments of God? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We don't keep the commandments of Jesus to earn more favor. We don't, keep, we don't have a Roman Catholic understanding of that we have to earn the merit of God. We are freely given salvation through Christ Jesus, and we believe on that. You don't keep his commandments to have more love from Jesus, to be more accepted. You are accepted. That's why you keep his commandments. We, are you fulfilling the Great Commission? We love one another in the church, even though we are so different from one another, even though we are sinners and at times we hurt one another. Are we loving each other? If anyone is in Christ, the Bible says the old has passed away. It doesn't say, oh, you can continue on living in it. No, it says the old has passed away. It's dead. And the new has risen with Christ. It's alive. You cannot pass from an unbeliever, a natural man, to a Christian with no differences in your life. I'm not saying you're going to have it all figured out. I'm not saying you're going to be living perfectly the next day but that you're progressively, slowly moving towards sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. Can people tell that you love Christ? Over and over again, scriptures tell us these things. Just read the book of 1 John. It tells us why we might know if we're in Christ. We have healthcare workers here, right? You look for vital signs of life on bodies. Well, 1 John gives us the vital signs of spiritual life. Is there truly life in this person or are they dead? John points us to the fruits of regeneration, that there is true and physical lasting change. Think about the parable of the sower and the soils, right? The seed that fell on the rocky ground, Satan snatched it because there was no life there. The seed that fell on the shadow ground, it sprung up this bright plant, and they're like, oh, it looks promising, there's life. But it bore no fruit, and the sun shriveled it away. And then you have the plants that came up in the thorny soil, and the desires and the riches and the pleasures of this life choked it out so that there was no fruit. But the only plant that produced fruit was from the good soil, and the fruit that was produced was 20, 40, 60 fold, and we see from that text that if there is a glimmer of life, but there's no fruit, you're not a true disciple of Christ. And so Schaefer understanding of the carnal Christian, the carnal man, does not accord with 
scripture and has caused people to believe a false view. It has caused many people to think that they are truly converts because they've said a prayer at some point in their life. But now they hate God, they hate the church, and they hate everything about it. And they don't live as Christians, and they, but they don't live as made new creations. It's because they were truly never saved. The biblical understanding for assurance is based on three things. We believe in the promises of God, like John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. We believe that, and we shall not perish if we believe that. Secondly, we believe the testimony of God's spirit and our spirit. Romans 8 talks about this, that the spirit of God will pour in us in such a way that our hearts will cry out, what? Abba, Father. We will know that we are his sons and daughters. And thirdly, the third test is that we get our assurance from the fruit of our regeneration, that we can look at our lives and go, yeah, I'm still stumbling and making mistakes and whatnot, but there's a persistence in love and in faith and in good works. That is how we are sure that God has done a work in our lives. And it's not just a faulty view of assurance that has come from this, but also a wrong view of evangelism. Because someone can go from a natural person to a carnal person with no distinguishable marks, no change. And this has made evangelism, which is the act of you sharing your faith, has boiled it down to a narrow form of decisionalism. Just get them to say a prayer. Just get them to confess it. Asking people to accept Jesus without them really even knowing what they're considering. And you hype them up. And it's completely contrary to what we see in Scripture. The doctrine is also extremely dangerous for children. Because how many children, when presented with the idea of, if you just say these magic words, you're going to go to heaven. You're going to see grandma and grandpa again. It's manipulation. What child wouldn't say that? And we see mass amounts of children praying a prayer to ask Jesus in their hearts when they're young. And when they're older, they hate the church. They don't love the word of God. They don't make the gospel known. They don't know Christ. And they have no desire or affection for the things of God. And, it's, and what we do is a disservice. We say, oh, you're just a carnal Christian. We don't evangelize them because they've said a prayer. And these are a huge amount of false converts that need the gospel church. We don't just need to be focused out there on the community. We need to be focused on the ones in our church who yet to bow their knee to Christ. They need the gospel. Jesus is not just a get-out-of-hell-free get card. This isn't Monopoly. We don't just say magic words so that one day we'll go to heaven. It's a true life transformation experience. God does not save people that way. He makes you a new creation. He regenerates your heart. He takes your heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh. He opens the eyes of the blind. He opens the ears of the deaf in, that, in such a way that we should leap for joy because what we see in the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, we are drawn irresistibly to come to him, to forsake our lives, to leave our sins behind, up to, and to cling to Jesus forever because God has done a work in our hearts. This is the fruit of the gospel. And if someone doesn't know that, if someone has false assurance and just words that they've said but don't live in any way like Christ, they need the gospel. And so this doctrine of the carnal mind has not only led to a faulty view of assurance and not, a fault, and not just a faulty view of evangelism, but a whole plethora of people who think they are Christians when they're not. And they will stand before Christ and they will hear these horrible words of, I've never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of iniquity, depart from me. So now did Schaefer mean for all this to come from his teaching? I don't think he did. 
I don't think he foresaw what would take place from his misunderstanding of the scripture. Uh, uh, but if, as your pastor, as your under-shepherd, as your leader here, I must stand here and say this is a false teaching upon the scriptures, and we must reject it. We must flee from it, and we must cling to the truth of this scripture. Because the scripture does teach about a carnal person or a fleshy person, but as I've already detailed in this sermon, he is not indistinguishable from the natural man. He is different. These Corinthian believers were acting like Christian. People could see that. People could experience that. But what Paul is saying in this one area of disunity, they were acting still like the world. They were forsaking the wisdom of God with the context of chapter 1 and 2, and they were subscribing to the wisdom of the world and imposing that upon the leaders. So Paul corrects them here and he calls them fleshly or carnal because of this matter of evaluating teachers. Not in all matters, but in this matter. And if you remember, he's doing this because the Corinthian culture loves great thinkers. Pastor Tyler detailed this for us. They love the philosophers and they would connect themselves with the teachers of the day and they would aspire to be like them. And Paul's saying, hey, you're a believer. You got the greatest teacher ever. You don't need to do that anymore. So now that we've cleared up the context of this verse, I want to close by just quickly looking at our last few verses. And I'll do that. Hey, we're actually right on time that we're normally at. So as, as we've just detailed the bulk of the sermon, that Paul is correcting the Corinthians of how they're handling divisions due to the, with the leaders among them and that they're acting merely human. And now he reinforces that in verses 5 to 9, which says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So what he's saying is now Paul goes on in these verses and the rest of the chapter 3 actually to, to address the issues of the vision within the Corinthian church regarding ch teachers and servants of the church. And he's saying there's jealousy, there's strife among them, there's sloganeering after Paul and Apollos. And now Paul says, you know, who's Apollos? What is Paul? What are they? He says they are servants through whom some of you have believed. So the overarching theme that he's going to even deal with in chapter 4 is that teachers of the church, evangelists of the church, missionaries, church planters, and pastors are all just servants of Christ Jesus. That we're here to serve. We're not here to make a following for ourselves. We're not here because we're the most attractive. At least Tyler is. But uh, uh, No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but we're not here because we're the richest or we're the most famous, but rather we are here as servants. Servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses an illustration from agriculture, and he says, uh, and, he, and I want you to see just three really quick things. First, he says that we are servants by whom some of you believe. And then in verses 5 and 6, he says that I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That's where your eyes should be focused. He's saying, I'm not more important than Apollos, or neither is he more important than me. What you should be focused on is that God gave the growth. I just threw some seed he threw some water on it, but your salvation is dependent on God's sovereignty and not my, my ability. They had different tasks and different roles, and the point of this passage is to point your eyes to Christ. Not one, was, one could have been more effective than the other, who knows? But it's all down to the fact that God was working through these leaders. They weren't doing it on their own strength. 
God's given some believers to believe under Paul's ministry and others to believe under Apollos' ministry, according to verse 5. And again, we see on repeat throughout Scripture, God's sovereignty in salvation clearly laid out for us. And Paul is appealing to God's sovereignty so the Corinthian believers would stop judging these teachers in the term of their effectiveness. Uh, how effective they are, how big their followings are. Uh, and, this, and the second thing that I want you to see is that the growth that they had was because of God was sovereign over all things, so we should not judge leaders by their human standards. Because of verse 7, he says, He who plants and he who wanders, they're not anything, because it's God who gives the growth. So don't let your affections be on Paul or Apollos. Put your affections on Jesus Christ. If, God is, if it's God who gives the growth, then and we are one body, then we are nothing. It's like we do this in the states. Like if you're a part of a church that has 50 people or a church that has 500 people, if you're from the church of 500, you look at that smaller church, you go, ah, something must be wrong with that pastor. He must not be teaching well. Something's wrong with him. Or vice versa, you're part of the smaller church, you look at the bigger church, you go, compromisers. They don't teach the truth there. Something's wrong with that pastor. He's, if, if he was teaching the truth, everybody would have gone. But what Paul is saying is that there's no difference between Paul and Apollos, only that God has given them different tasks. He has given them different roles, and it's all because of God's sovereign plan. So stop judging the, uh, the leaders in God's church as the culture would around them and focus on the success and their faithfulness to God, not their success in ministry, not in the size of their church, not in how well they preach, or vice versa. And the third thing as I end is Paul draws out here that there is unity among the servants of Christ. We shouldn't be in disunity. He says in verses 8 and 9 that he who plants and waters are one, and each will receive their wages according to their labor, and then God will give that to, the, and that to them, and that we are fellow workers in Christ. There is unity among the servants of the Lord, of Jesus Christ. There is unity among faithful teachers of God's word. We are planting, and we are watering, but we are the doing the same task. We are seeking to lay a foundation of Jesus Christ and to build people up in Christ and in the gospel. One task it should not be greater than the other. It should not divide people. We shouldn't divide over who's watering and who's uh, uh, planting seeds. We should be rejoicing and praising God that he is bringing growth. The main point out of verse 5 and 9 is that Christians need to stop judging God's laborers concerning their effectiveness or eloquence or any other worldly standard. Rather, they are servants, they're on the same team, and we are to be unified as a church in Jesus Christ. And it's who God, and it's God who is going to see, and it's God who's going to reward. That is what verse 8 says. And each will receive his wages according to his labor, meaning the evaluation of God's servants, like your elders, your deacons, me, and any of you else who are serving in leadership or any degree here, is that God will reward you. God will evaluate you, not me and not you. So let's commit together as a church to pray for that, to appear and uphold those things, that we look to a person's faithfulness in Jesus Christ and not in their effectiveness through worldly standards. Because God will use the weak things of this world to confound the wise, amen? He will, he, or the, the, the strong, and he'll use the, you know, the dumb things like me to confound the wise. So I am thankful that God uses just anyone because he uses somebody like me and he uses somebody like you. As I pray and the worship team comes, let's just reflect upon what we did this morning, which is seeing nine, eight, nine people being baptized and following Christ 
into the waters of baptism. And as we just learned today from Scripture, that we should be unified, that we should be known for our love, and that we should be loving on these nine who have followed Christ into the waters of baptism. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and, and worship our Lord.